0: Hello,
1: I'm Johnny Cash. Hello, welcome to the Six String Hayride podcast with Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. Join us on a journey through the world of classic country music. We will be talking about murder, prison, love, death, trains, horses, dancing, drinking, guitar picking, and the all-time great albums of country music. Stay tuned. At the end of the episode, we'll be giving out recipes from the June Carter, Johnny Cash Family Cookbook, and my partner Chris here is going to tell us what's on the Hayride this week.
2: Welcome back to the Hayride, where we're bringing a special edition to you. Uh, We did say in our last show about prison that the next episode was going to be us uh, deconstructing the Rolling Stone Top 20 list. And our next regular episode will be exactly that. But we did decide that it would be really remiss on our part if we did an episode about prison, and we didn't really talk much about probably the two most seminal prison albums of all time, which are At Folsom Prison by Johnny Cash and At San Quentin by Johnny Cash. We did mention Folsom in a backhanded way by talking about 25 Minutes to Go. Uh, But we decided we wanted to bring you kind of a nice little christmas present of talking about these two records what they mean to us uh, we're not going to go into a ton of detail here because we will talk about these both at length when we do our own top 20 lists but jim why don't you start by telling us a little bit about johnny cash the man in his life
1: well it's i guess a sad fact that the hayride is going back to prison after being released but yeah like chris said we just could not move on without covering the two truly iconic records of the genre uh johnny cash was actually born just with the initials jr and when he went into the army when he was 18 that's when he had to write down a name on a form so he went with johnny and uh he was born in february of 1932 in arkansas when he was a little kid his family moved into a house and farmland that was part of a New Deal program in the Depression. This was in Dias, Arkansas, and Johnny had a typical upbringing for that time and place. Not a lot of school. You learn to read and play a musical instrument at home from your parents. You're picking a lot of cotton, and you're singing a lot of gospel music, and you're listening to a lot of radio, and that was pretty much the life. Johnny learns how to play guitar when he's in the service, And he gets out, he marries a kind of childhood sweetheart, Vivian, and they settle in Memphis in 1954. Johnny teams up with Luther Perkins and Marshall Grant, who's just learning how to play bass. It's kind of that age-old story. The two other guys look at the third guy and say, you're the bass player. And that's how marshall grant got the job in 1955 they convince sam phillips at famous sun studio to let them record the first single is hey porter with cry 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 on the other side
0: hey porter hey porter would you tell me the time how much longer will it be to we cross that mason dixon line at daylight would you tell that engineer to slow it down Or better still, just stop the train, because I want to look
1: around. And it's a pretty big local hit. They get on a lot of the package shows with the other Sun artists. Johnny becomes good friends with Carl Perkins and with Elvis. Jerry Lee Lewis becomes part of that group later on. And then Johnny's second single is Folsom Prison Blues which was influenced by a 1951 film that he saw called Inside the Walls of Folsom, a film by a guy named Crane Wilbur, and a song called Crescent City Blues, which is very much such an obvious influence on Folsom that years later, Johnny had what is politely called an out-of-court settlement with the family of the creators of Crescent City Blues. Now, after getting off to an incredible start in the mid to late 50s, Folsom Prison, I Walk the Line, I Still Miss Someone, Big River, Johnny, like Carl Perkins, gets really big, leaves Sun Records, goes to Columbia. And then in the early 60s, things start to get not so great for Johnny. The constant touring and recording pretty much drives him to pills and to alcohol His own personal demons that he openly discussed through his life play a large part in this. His marriage deteriorates. He's very distant from his daughters. Between 1960 and 1967, Johnny's outlaw reputation kind of takes shape over the fact that he's constantly high on pills. And while he never is an actual convict, he does do seven different one-night stands in prison. The most famous one is in Starkville, Mississippi, in May of 1965. He's out late at night looking to buy a pack of cigarettes after a gig, and the police see that as loitering, picking flowers, and not having any ID on you. I
0: was walking down the street and, uh, you know, going to get me some cigarettes or something, about two o'clock in the morning after a show, I think I was. Anyway, I reached down and picked a dandelion here and a daisy there as I went along, and This car pulls up. I said, get it the hell in here, boy. What are you doing? I said, I'm just picking flowers. Well, $36 for picking flowers in a night in jail. God damn. You can't hardly win, can you?
1: Damn. (laughs) They'd lock him in the drunk tank overnight, never take his name.
0: They threw me in the car and started driving into town. I said, what the hell did I do? And he said, shut up and sit down. Well, they emptied out my pockets, took my pills and guitar picks. I said, wait, my name is all shut up. Well, I sure was in a fix.
1: Never ask who he is. Lock the door. Sheriff goes home for the night. They come back in the morning, let him go. He pays a fine. He gets his guitar picks and a flower back, according to the incredible song that he gets out of this. So it did pay off in some way. Uh, the song is Starkville City Jail. It's one of the centerpieces, one of the great prison songs on the Live at San Quentin record. So by 1968, Johnny has spent most of the last six to 12 months under the care of June Carter and Mother Maybel. Carl Perkins is also there trying to kick alcohol. And together with the help of the Carter women, Carl beats drinking, Johnny beats pills, they kind of re their musical bond, and 1968 becomes really the great comeback year for Johnny Cash. He goes to Folsom Prison and does the famous live concert recording on January 13th of 1968. He finally marries June Carter on March 1st of 1968.
2: But in February 1968, Carter was twice divorced and single again and Cash had just wrapped up a messy divorce with his first wife. It was during a performance at London, Ontario's London Ice House that Cash abruptly blurted into the microphone, will you marry me? Panicked, Carter quickly tried to launch into another song, but with Cash waiting for an answer and with 7,000 Canadians screaming, say yes, she relented. As Carter would say later, I would have liked it if he'd gotten down on his knees and proposed to me, but that wasn't the way it was.
1: And then a few months later, the album is released, and Johnny really goes from challenger to champion at that point. He's conquered his demons. He has married the woman of his dreams. And once you get the musical power of a healthy Johnny Cash, and June Carter with her mom and her sisters right behind her, that becomes an unstoppable force that really creates the first great renaissance period in Johnny's career. And Chris, I know you and I talk about this record a lot. What do you got for us?
2: And that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, I think a lot of people, when they think Johnny Cash comeback, they're thinking of Rick Rubin and the American recordings. And we'll talk about that a little bit at the end of the episode. But Ash had a number of different comebacks. And certainly this was the biggest at the time and certainly probably the most important one. And the reason for that, in my opinion, is because, you know, Cash had been around for quite a while by 1968, right? He had been around for 13 years or so. And in the music industry at that time, that was just an eternity. You just didn't have people staying around and staying relevant for that length of time uh, in terms of music that say teenagers would listen to On the radio i mean of course there were some exceptions and this was starting to become a thing uh whether we're talking about um elvis who was still very much relevant at this point in time uh the beatles who were in the height of their powers at this time but you know they they had a nice long run themselves comparative to most pop stars but at the time it wasn't really much of a thing so without this first great comeback of caches this first renaissance period as you put it We probably don't get everything that comes after. And if you look at the man's catalog as a whole, it's just an amazing outpouring of classic Americana music that's going to come out from this point forward. Um, I did think that so i guess we should point out to people that when we're talking about these records on this show today we're specifically talking about the legacy editions which were released uh, in the mid to late 2000s i believe san quentin was released in 2006 Folsom was released in 2008 so we're and and the thing that's important to note there is that while the records themselves have been out for decades prior to this point this was the first release of the like the show as the show existed essentially you you had the entire recording top to bottom of what took place on that day so you had carl perkins opening you had the statler brothers also coming out and doing some songs you had cash doing some songs you had cash in june doing some songs you had uh, you know you, you you had uh essentially like a, a entire ensemble cast on these recordings but Specifically in Folsom, they played two shows that day. The first one was at 9.40 a.m. And the second one was at 12.40 p.m. Now, if you listen to the show, it's actually just a little over an hour. So it's not like they played two, you know, two and a half hour shows or anything like that. But what strikes me on the Folsom Legacy Edition is almost all of the songs that made the initial record came from the first show. In that show, you can really hear Johnny almost hypercharged with this emotional delivery of the songs he's singing and the the banter he's having with the inmates and just the the cause he's trying to lead the charge for. You know, we're talking about a man who... Seriously believed in prison reform and and questioned the American justice system the way it existed at that time and and I presume would probably still continue to question it to this day. Um, so at that first show he really just leaves everything on the stage. That second show comes off as almost flat. And so I guess from the standpoint of I'm a music fan sitting there listening to something trying to enjoy it and have a good time it's it's not as enjoyable. Uh, a disc to listen to, but I think it's really important because I think it, in some ways, the flatness of the second show really shows how important this was to him because you can hear how he just gave it all in the initial go Um, We did talk about one of the songs that came out from this record in the prison episode. We talked about 25 minutes to go. Uh, but there were a number of songs that had jail or prison themes. Cocaine blues.
0: Got up next morning and I grabbed that gun. Took a shot of cocaine and away I run. Made a good run, but I ran too slow. They overtook me
2: down in Warez, Mexico. Uh, I'm here to get my baby out of jail. Uh, another song that we talked about in the murder ballad episode, The Long Black Veil. Um, there, there were quite a number of songs here that, well, Greystone Chapel, which we'll talk about a little bit, uh, in a minute, but there were quite a number of songs here, which had a prison theme to them. So Johnny, I think was trying to communicate, you know, some, some empathy for the inmates, but without trying to do it in a condescending way of, you know, let's just play uplifting, you know, church songs to make the guys forget about where they are. He didn't seem to want them to forget about where they were. He seemed to want to make sure that they understood that he was on their side in terms of they were still valuable human beings. So I really think that comes through. And I don't think you get the full picture when you only listen to the first disc. I think you need to listen to both to really get the full picture. Um, Do you have anything you want to add to that, Jim?
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right about Johnny's attitude towards the prisoners over both records. He does not hesitate to joke about the guards. Uh, he asks a guard to get him water and then he it's kind of a running joke through both records. He's like, oh, you get everything in a tin cup around here. Uh, and then he tells the guard to overlook the fact that he's hidden all his pills and some songs that he stole in his guitar case. Uh, Whenever he mentions the warden, you get a nice round of uh, booze from the very captive crowd.
0: If uh, any of the guards are still speaking to me, could I have a glass of water?
1: johnny and june of interact with the prisoners in a way that is like chris said just not patronizing in any way it's not a oh you poor lads you you know you've done wrong uh, bless your heart and all that no they just talk to them like they're entertaining a crowd uh june cracks a few pretty good jokes about her and her sisters being the only women in the place
0: well you're very nice and we really do appreciate it and i Since we're the only girls on the show, I I don't know what kind of show you're expecting out of us. But, no, sometimes sometimes they do girly type kind of shows, but I've got one announcement to make. I don't want any confusion. This is as sexy as I'm gonna get, right here.
1: (laughs) They don't talk down to the guys at all and they don't overlook where they are and why they're there. Uh, But on Folsom, especially on that album, you get Johnny Cash, the comedian, in a big way. Uh, 25 minutes to go, well, it's Shel Silverstein writing it, so yeah, it's going to be hilarious. It's going to be good, fun satire. Johnny delivers it as such. But then he goes on to Dirty Old Egg Sucking Dog, Flushed From the Bathroom of Your Heart.
0: I've been washed down the sink of your conscience In a theater of your love I lost my part And now you say you've got me out Of your conscience I've been flushed from the bathroom Of your heart
1: And Joe Bean, where the punchline is the guy is waiting to hear a pardon from the governor. The governor gets back to him and says, well, I can't give you a pardon, but I do notice it's your birthday today. So happy birthday, Joe Bean. You get the comedy side and you get a straight up interaction that's kind of famous through Johnny and June's career where they're absolutely fine reaching out to not only the prison community, but they spent a ton of time with the Native Indigenous communities in America as well. And Johnny's comment was always just, you know, a lot of people overlook both these populations. I choose not to. And it was just as simple as that. It wasn't necessarily politics. It was just, hey, they're people too, so why not treat them like that?
2: Yeah, and I just wanted to add a little bit um, specifically with dirty old egg sucking dog and flush from the bathroom or your heart. Both of those songs were written by Cowboy Jack Clement. Uh, I, I presume that we will probably talk about Cowboy Jack on some future episodes of the Hayride. Uh, One of the classic songwriters of this genre, especially during that era. Um, But you're right. That is an actually, that's a pretty observant point that this was cash, the stand-up comedian, for lack of a better way to put it. He was, there to entertain and this was very much entertaining
1: yeah and that's uh you're right with jack clement he was part of the old sun records crew he was a songwriter there and as phillips sam phillips got more into the business side a lot more of the hands-on stuff going on in the studio and the recording booth was jack clement when you do the sun records tour his name comes up just about as much as perkins or cash Or Sam Phillips himself, Uh, he was one of the guys making that engine run.
2: So, you know, neither of these shows were anywhere near the first shows that Johnny Cash had played in prison, nor would they be the last. Um, Cash first performed in prison in Huntsville, uh, which is a a famous prison in Texas, uh, home of one of the most intense and longest standoffs in American prison history. Uh, There is a podcast out there about that. The name escapes me right now. But if you just look up Huntsville Prison Podcast, it's quite interesting. Um, As a matter of fact, Merle Haggard actually has a song called Huntsville about that prison, although not about the standoff. Um, So Cash first starts playing prisons when he plays Huntsville in 57. Uh, Now, when I was watching the uh, DVD that's included with the uh, Folsom Legacy Edition, Cash actually says on the DVD that it's 1956. But everything that I could find online seemed to indicate that it actually was 1957. So we'll just assume that, you know, it's just a trick of the memory as often happens. But after that, Cash goes on to play a number of other shows, including uh, some in the early 60s in San Quentin. And somewhere during this run of prison shows, he starts to get the idea that he'd really like to record one of these for a live record. And he manages to set that up for Folsom in 1968, and it goes so well and gives us an album that eventually becomes so well received uh, after a few months of, you know, Columbia not necessarily believing in it, that he's able to pull this off again in the the following year in San Quentin. Uh, do you have any final thoughts you want to give on Folsom before we move on to 1969 in San Quentin?
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right about the Huntsville uh, prison concert being later 1957, because the first San Quentin concert, which was a announced and kind of bigger deal, was New Year's Day of 1958. So having a run through somewhere else a few months before makes more sense than there being the the longer gap. Uh, And yeah, Cash, after the original single of Folsom, Prison came out in the mid-50s, he started getting letters from prisoners right away. And as he went on to, you know, make other records that appeal to this mindset and to that population, he would get more and more mail. So by the time you get to the later 60s, he's trying to revive his career. He's healthy enough to do so. He's got his personal life together. And with some help from a new uh, management team at Columbia, he's finally able to convince people, hey, let me go do this. And the production, the recording crew that they put together does a really great job because live albums are kind of rare at this point. And to have to work in such a unique environment as a very high security prison that presents a real unique situation that's different from having some union engineers set up mics in a theater like they do all the time
2: you know before we move on i guess i do want to close the door on folsom with uh one final thought so there's a moment that is on every version of the album essentially where uh there's an inmate in folsom by the name of glenn shirley and he has actually written a song called graystone chapel
0: there's a gray stone chapel here at Folsom. A house of worship in this den of sin. You wouldn't think that God had a place here at Folsom. But he saved the soul of many lost men.
2: Cash learns the song the night before the show. They, you know, Shirley has no idea that they're going to play this song. And suddenly at the show, Cash calls it out and plays it. And when I first heard that, you know, the first time I ever listened to whichever version record I listened to first, I thought, well, that's a really neat story. And then you go on to find out that Glenn Shirley actually was pardoned as pretty much as a direct result of Cash. Uh, Cash was able to persuade Ronald Reagan, who was the governor of California at the time, to grant Glenn Shirley a pardon. Uh, Shirley goes on to join the Johnny Cash show, and he performs with him for a number of years on the road. It is You know, he he travels with him. He plays with him. And it if that's all you knew, it would seem like a very happy story. We'll post some information on the Hayride Facebook page uh unfortunately the story with Glenn Shirley does not have a happy ending at all um but that's enough of that let's move on to San Quentin
1: so yeah this you know this is an incredible one year period of uh, Folsom is recorded in January of 68 San Quentin in February of 69 him and June get married in between all that and it just really launches him into his what we now know to be his really unique top of the pile kind of role as royalty not only in country but in folk and around the rock and roll world the man is very highly respected
2: so sure
1: yeah um so yeah let's move on to I guess the bigger brother of the two the one that uh gets the more attention and the bigger reputation Recorded February 24th of 1969. This was all one show straight through. Johnny Cash again with Maybelle, June, Anita, and Helen Carter. And with the Statler brothers and the great Carl Perkins. Live at San Quentin.
2: All right, so let's talk about at San Quentin. Uh, you called it the big brother of the two records earlier. Uh, I would agree with that. For sure, it's the one that comes off as the most polished of the two. Now, the reason for that makes quite a bit of sense when you think about it. Having done this just over a year earlier in January of 1968 at Folsom, the crew now really understands uh, much better what they need to do in order to get a good sound from a live recording under challenging circumstances. So they're able to pull that off in a really nice way. One of the interesting differences between the two shows, uh, and by the way, just for the sake of consistency, we'll point out that At San Quentin was recorded on February 24th of 1969, so just over a year and a month after At Folsom, which was January 13th of 1968. Um, But something that really comes across in the two albums in terms of the technical parts, is that in the first show or the first uh, album, I should say, they did two shows. So there was an early show and a late show in this one. They just do this one ensemble show where they keep rotating people in and out. So we open with blue suede shoes by Carl Perkins. We move on to flowers on the wall, uh, by the Statler brothers and From there, we kind of go into this rotation where Johnny comes out for a couple of songs. The Carters are out for a couple of songs. The Statler brothers come back out. Carl Perkins comes back out and they just sort of rotate in and out so that they don't wind up with this emotional lag that they had at Folsom, where the later show sounded a bit flatter because everything had been left on stage. Instead, it's kind of like they're almost trying to preserve Cash and not let him get too involved or too tired or too just emotionally charged to do you know the job that he's trying to do and it really comes across this is a, just a much cleaner sounding album than at Folsom uh when we talk about our top 20 lists I know Jim is going to have uh, Folsom on his top 20 and I will have San Quentin on mine so we can get into some more of the differences at that point but I'd really like to talk about some of the songs that make it onto at San Quentin. Uh, There is a bit of a tie-in with Folsom on some of the songs. Uh, There are songs that appear on both records. Um, Jim will talk about that in a minute, but there's also a connection with Shel Silverstein who wrote 25 minutes to go, which was from at Folsom. And then he writes a boy named Sue, which was released uh, with at San Quentin. As a matter of fact, it made it all the way up to number two on the pop charts.
0: Well, my daddy left home when I was three and he didn't leave much to Ma and me, just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke and it got a lot of laughs from a lot of folks. Seems I had to fight my whole
2: life through. So... You know, there's not as many novelty songs in this one as there was at Folsom, but they really hit it with the one that they went for. Uh, Jim, why don't you give us some thoughts on the record itself and any of the songs or comparisons you'd like to?
1: Well, this record looms large for me, uh, has since I was a little kid. My dad was a Johnny Cash fan in such a way that I think the Star Trek and the Star Wars people would blush and take a step back uh this record was played almost constantly when I was a kid and it's the first album cover that really kind of got to me in a way that people talk about Sergeant Pepper or Abbey Road or uh, some of the Jimi Hendrix that Axis as, as love cover or Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, this was like the first album cover that just freaked me out because I was probably about five and the record was never being played in a fully lit room. And it's that iconic photo of Johnny with the blue stage light. But to a little kid, it looked like he was blue and sparkly and probably about 50 feet tall. Uh, This is a record that I have easily heard uh, Amongst you know the most times in my life, the only other record I can think of that uh, I was aware of when I was a little kid was Rubber Salt Beatles record. So I you know if I was doing the Desert Island thing, this it would be these two records. Um, musically, this is a much different deal than the Live at Folsom record uh, for a couple reasons. Like Chris said, they had kind of had the ensemble on the road for about a year at this point with the Statler brothers and Carl Perkins. Then you had mother Maybell with June and Helen and Anita doing some songs. Then you had Johnny playing with his band. And you also had bits of the show where he would just be on a stool doing stuff by himself on the guitar. Uh, So again, if you're on the road with that for a full year, you get the routine down, you know what you're doing. The crew knows what they're doing and things go a lot easier. And, As much as that morning show at Folsom, that first show that Chris is right to speak so highly of, that was the challenger fighting his way up the mountain. This is kind of the king sitting on the mountain, giving the master class. Johnny is in full command of his abilities here. June is the perfect partner in crime here throughout the show with her comedy her banter with the audience, and her amazing singing. Carl Perkins really kind of steals the show as the guitar player. And and this is the big switch for Cash. In between these two albums, Luther Perkins, who had been his guitar player since the start, who really created that beautiful, minimalist, yet very melodic kind of style that is such a key ingredient in Cash's Recordings. Luther played the boogie boogie, Luther played the boogie in the strangest kind of way.
0: Fletch train.
1: Uh, Luther had died from injuries from a fire in between the two records. So Carl Perkins, not related at all. Uh, We already established him as an old pal of Johnny's, an incredible guitar player. He steps in, and that does change the arrangements a bit because they're also breaking in a new guitar player named Bob Wooten, a guy from Oklahoma. And it was kind of Carl Perkins' job to sort of be there to bridge that gap. And having the two-guitar attack for the songs really kind of fills out the band a bit it adds a little more fire to the guitar solos and on orange blossom special you get carl reunited with ws holland the drummer that johnny stole from carl in the late 50s and the rhythm that they get into uh again this is on the orange blossom special track between the snare drum and carl's guitar playing Boy, you just look up, you know, trained beaten rhythm in the dictionary, and yeah, it's there. this is Johnny with the full ensemble. They've been doing it for a while. They're really, really great at it at this point. And then we get a few kind of song change-ups that are unique to the show as well. You get uh, a new song called San Quentin that Johnny says to the audience, he just written the day before was not rehearsed with the band. And we had been talking about Johnny's Relationship with the prison community and with his attitude towards prison reform. And Johnny really pulls no punches here because he says to the prisoners, hey, I was trying to think yesterday what this was like from your point of view. I wrote a song called San Quentin. The next words out of his mouth are, San Quentin, you've been living hell to me.
0: San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. You blistered me since 1963. I've seen them come and go and I've seen them die. And long ago, I stopped asking why.
1: And obviously the crowd goes nuts. It's a record, so you don't see the look on the guards' faces, but not too hard to imagine that one. Uh Johnny clearly reaching out to people that he believes need reaching out to. Uh, then the other kind of odd musical change-up that was sprung on the band before the show was to do the Shel Silverstein song, A Boy Named Sue. The band kind of made it up as they went along. Johnny had the words taped on a piece of paper by the mic stand. And of course, that's the song that becomes a huge hit single off the album band never rehearsed it johnny never performed it before what the hell let's do it it's going to be a big hit
0: i said my name is sue how do you do now you gonna die yeah that's what i told him well i hit him hard right between the eyes and he went down but to my surprise I come up with a knife and cut off a piece of my ear But I busted a chair right across his teeth, and we crashed through the wall and into the street, kicking and a-gouging in the mud and the blood and the beer.
1: Chris and I have spent a lot of time listening to this one and talking about it. You get the Carter family bringing the nice gospel touch with He Turned Water into Wine, and There Will Be Peace in the Valley.
0: There will be peace in the valley for me, dear Lord. I pray.
1: There will be peace in the valley for me. And then the other incredible Carl Perkins moment on this record, and I think this really speaks to the man's skill as a songwriter. And to his sense of nerve, Uh, we know Carl wrote Blue Suede Shoes, one of the all-time greats. For this album, he writes a song called Daddy Sang Bass that a lot of people might not know by title, but it is a direct sequel and response to the Carter family's Will the Circle Be Unbroken? And Carl writes an incredibly beautiful song. The family in the long run is reunited and together. The circle is not broken. Not only does Carl have the skill to write a song like this, but he has the nerve to then not only go to Johnny Cash with it, but to go to Mother Maybell and her three daughters and say, here, here's part two. I'd like you to sing this with me. And they do. It's an extraordinary musical moment and again if you just think carl perkins was the blue suede shoes guy listen to this record he's a hell of a guitar player you can hear the big influence he had on george harrison And Daddy Sang Bass is one of those songs that, you know, every once in a while you get lucky and you write one of the all-time greats. And Mr. Perkins did an amazing job with that one. And, And Carl Perkins wrote us another
0: song that tells about the reason for it all. One of these days that it won't be long, I'll rejoin them in a song. I'm gonna join the family circle at the throne. Oh, the circle will be broken by and by Lord by and by Daddy saying bass. I'm brother joined in the sky lord in the sky.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And as a matter of fact, uh two of the songs you just mentioned. Um, Daddy Sang Bass and A Boy Named Sue actually wind up staying in the Cash repertoire uh, for the rest of his career, um, or certainly the, the better part of it, if not the entire thing. Both of those songs just become these really iconic Cash hits that you almost instantly identify with the Cash Carter tours, um, but they all kind of just fell together at this moment in time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other song that fits that mold is his collaboration with Bob Dylan, Wanted Man.
2: Wanted Man
0: in California, Wanted Man in Buffalo, Wanted Man in Kansas City, Wanted Man in Ohio, Wanted Man in Mississippi, Wanted Man in Old Cheyenne, wherever you might look tonight, you might see this Wanted Man.
1: It's a great outlaw guy on the lamb song, uh, you know, another one of those many that Cash does over the years. And his friendship with Bob Dylan in the late 1960s was a real big influence on both guys. Cash participated in the Nashville Skyline album, and they did a wonderful duet with Girl from the North Country on uh for the Dylan album, and they performed it later together on Johnny's TV show.
2: Yeah, and that's, by the way, that's an amazing clip on Johnny's TV show. Uh, it's funny. Two guys with voices like that you don't really think of as, harm- I guess you wouldn't really call it harmony, but singing together well, and yet they pull that off. Uh, I do want to go back and talk about something you mentioned earlier. So you were talking about the song Starkville City Jail, which is a great sh- a great song, by the way. Um before he plays that on the album at some point somebody in the audience you can clearly hear them say hey johnny where's luther and you can hear cash almost getting choked up where he's talking about how they had lost luther in a fire and it was just a few months prior to this show so I, i'm sure that kind of weighs heavy on his mind and cash actually asked the audience you know let's give a cheer for luther for my guitar
0: oh here We're sorry to say that uh, Luther passed away seven months ago, after being with us for 13 years, Luther Perkins. And um, how about one big cheer for Luther Perkins?
2: So, you know, all the jokes about captive audience and whatnot aside, these are people who clearly had a deep appreciation of the man who had a deep appreciation of them. Um, You also mentioned how he really seemed at Folsom, like he was trying to regain the crown. And by San Quentin, it's kind of like he was sitting on the mountaintop. And I, I agree with that. When I listened to live at Folsom, to me, that's a man who has something to prove and he's, you know, he's trying desperately to prove it. Now, I don't know what that is. Is he trying to prove that he can still be relevant? Is he trying to prove that he still has something to say? Is he trying to prove that while everybody was already writing him off, that the rumors of his death had been greatly exaggerated? I'm not sure, but whatever it was, he was trying to say, it's clear that by the time that at San Quentin is recorded, he feels like he's managing to say it. Um, There were obviously some changes in his life between the two records uh you mentioned that he and june had finally gotten married of course they had carried on one of the all-time great passionate love affairs up to that point kind of an on again off again will they or won't they but you know looking back through the lens of history it kind of seems inevitable that they would wind up together and you're kind of hearing all of those things come together between these two albums i i also think that it's important to note what kind of impact these two records had just on the, the, the music scene as a whole. I mean, first of all, you get BB King jumping on the the prison bandwagon by doing uh, the live at Cook County jail record. And then Dylan, of course, writes hurricane, which I believe you talked about a little bit in the, uh, the prison episode. So these two records have a huge impact on not just country fans, but musicians and fans of music. And it really starts to show in the the culture in the coming years. Uh, also, something else that really caught me about Starkville City Jail, that one really has a very Tom T. Hall-like vibe to it. It's It's probably one of Cash's most autobiographical songs. And, you know, we're used to hearing songs like I Walk the Line, which was clearly bullshit, right? There's nothing on it. He might want to pretend like that was his autobiography, but it wasn't. You know, he was not walking the line for anyone at that particular point in his life. But when I listen to Starkville City Jail, to me, that just really oozes Tom T. Hall out of every pore of that song. Uh, We'll talk more about Tom T. Hall when we get into the top 20 list, but... I just, that struck me when I was listening to that song earlier. As a matter of fact, I listened to the entire San Quentin Legacy uh, edition today on my way to and from work. So, you know, that, that really just set with me.
0: I strolled along the sidewalk, neath the sweet magnolia trees. I was whistling, picking flowers, swaying in the southern breeze. I found myself surrounded, one policeman said that's him come along wildflower child don't you know that it's too a.m.? they're bound to get you
2: because they got a curfew and you go to the starkville city jail well- also uh towards the end of the show before they get to the closing medley they do uh the old account was settled long ago which is another gospel song and it really is unmistakable how much uh the, the carter sisters And I would presume the Statler brothers are back on stage at this point. They just sound like a church choir. It is the most amazing, just harmonic blend of voices that are not an actual church choir.
1: Well, the church choir, you're absolutely right, because when they were all kids, they were getting dragged to church on Sunday, and they were singing. And, you know, almost every documentary you see with country people, blues people, you know, the musicians, they talk about, you know, that raging conflict between Saturday night and Sunday morning. And there is admittedly church music mixed in to all of this country all of this blues even when you get up as far into music as aretha franklin and sam cook their roots are firmly you know musically and their childhood spent in the church settings uh, i think pretty much everything about san quentin chris that you brought up you know is more than true it's the man's kind of victory lap at this point in his life uh, if you are the songwriter that Cash is in the body of work that he created, you know, even if you cut it off in 1969, and he gets his health and his confidence back, and he has the support of Maybell and June Carter, that's an extraordinarily unique moment in his life and in his music. And this record absolutely proves that,
2: no doubt left at all. Yeah, I I have to fully agree with you. Um, You know, and the nice thing is that these records weren't just the beginning of a musical comeback. They were the beginning or the continuation of just the way the man chose to live his life, the causes he chose to fight for and stand up for, the people he chose to fight for and stand up for you know, you're, you're hearing a guy really leave it all on stage and just the waves of respect that you can feel coming from the audience as they cheer, you know, as he's cracking jokes about the guards in the water. And, you know, like you said, claiming that he, he hid all the pills in his bag or stolen songs or, you know, the, the various jokes that he's telling, it just comes off as a guy who. You know, he, he was trying to connect with a forgotten group of people, and he's really doing a good job succeeding. Uh, this did kick off um, a number of prison recordings that Cash did after this. Uh, there's one from a Swedish prison called uh, uh There was one from a Tennessee prison after this as well. But this is really where it all begins. This is what leads us through that renaissance of cash that's going to take us through the seventies and into the eighties.
1: So after the success of Folsom prison and then San Quentin in 1969, Johnny and June had the support of their record company. They had a very eager and receptive audience. They got busy. They got right to work. Uh, Johnny and June had a network TV show from 1969 to 71 this allowed them to keep working and giving exposure to the Carter family and to Merle Haggard, to the Statler brothers, to Carl Perkins. Johnny was able to help Chris Christofferson get his start as not only a great songwriter, but a performer as well. Charlie Pride and Roy Clark, Chet Atkins, pretty much everybody. Uh, that Johnny could reach out to and give them a chance to come and play music on network television in the early seventies. That's what happened from there. Johnny went on a lot of the seventies. The records are not up to the legendary standards, but lots of TV work and lots of live performances. He does Columbo episodes. June and Johnny are on Dr. Quinn medicine woman quite a bit And he becomes good friends with one of June's distant cousins, Jimmy Carter. And Johnny starts getting more interested, not only in his religious faith with Jimmy Carter, but into a lot of charity work too, especially the house building projects that the Carter family is so well known for. And then in the eighties, you get Johnny eventually signing on with Mercury Records. Again, the records are not great. They're not huge sellers. He goes back to performing in a lot of casinos and county fairs. But during this time, his older music is really catching on with current musicians of the era, especially Bono and Tom Petty. And he forms friendships with them, eventually collaborations with them, By the time we get into the early 1990s, Johnny's playing at small places here in the States. In 91 and 92, I had the good fortune of seeing him at a small bar across the street from Wrigley Field, $25 to get in, place held about 500 people. The first time I ever saw him perform live, I was maybe about 20, 25 feet from the stage And it was like when I was a little kid. He was 50 feet tall. He was sparkly blue. And it was just more legend that could fill any room.
0: Fear not, Homer. I am your
1: spirit guide.
0: yeah. There is a lesson you must learn. If it's about laying off the insanity peppers, I'm way ahead of you. No, I speak of a deeper wisdom. The problem, Homer, is that the mind is always chattering away. With a thousand thoughts at once. Yeah, that's me, all right. Clarity is the path to inner peace. In
1: 1994, Johnny starts collaborating with the producer Rick Rubin, and they create a great run of over a half a dozen albums that start with Johnny and some solo acoustic guitar performances, of older folk songs and some of johnny's original songs the old murder ballad delia's gone comes back into johnny's repertoire at this point and that's just one of those songs that we're always up for a good discussion about so stay tuned uh this series of records produces a nice collaboration between johnny and tom Pred- tom petty and the heartbreakers well i won't back down No, I won't
0: back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Gonna stand my ground,
1: won't be turned around. And you get a wonderful duet between Joe Strummer of The Clash and Johnny doing the Bob Marley song, redemption song. So, won't you help to sing these songs
0: of freedom? Cause all I ever had redemption songs, redemption songs, redemption songs.
2: Earlier, when we were talking about specifically at Folsom Prison, you had mentioned that that was the first great renaissance of cash's career the second great renaissance is these american recordings but there's some interesting subtext that should be clarified here because this is often thought of as you know the greatest comeback in if not just country music history possibly all of music history you know johnny cash becomes this amazing world beater once again thanks to rick rubin lifting him up out of relatively you know relative obscurity at the time but the truth is a little bit deeper than that because what we think of as an overnight success in this comeback really took 8 years you know the first the first one of the cash rubin records is american recordings in 1994 it's released and fairly well received uh, they do the second record in 96, which is, I believe the one where the heartbreakers are the backup band in 2000. They reconvened to do a third album, but it's not until 2002 and American 4, uh, the man comes around that things really take off. And it's due to the video that you mentioned uh, for hurt. You know, of course, nine inch nails are one of the biggest bands in the world at this particular point in time. And only somebody like Rick Rubin could dream up the idea of having Johnny Cash cover a song like this. And only somebody like Johnny Cash could find the courage to pull it off and pull it off. Well, you know, it's kind of like revisiting Carl Perkins doing daddy sing bass, you know, as the sequel song to will the circle be unbroken with one of the original performers of that song. It takes that level of courage for Johnny to sing this song, have it go out into the world. But it is so amazingly received by the public at large that suddenly Johnny Cash just blows up again. You know, I can remember for that whole year or around the time that that record came out, like, say, the year after it. You couldn't go to a party anywhere without somebody playing that video or somebody having that album on, it felt like.
0: What have I become? My sweetest friend. Everyone I know goes away in the air and you could have it all my empire
2: of dirt not like Rick Rubin and Cash start working together in 94 and by 95 all as well you know it's anything but um but it's just a it's a it's this amazing body of work that he was able to leave us with uh after Cash passes away very shortly after there's my mother's hymn book which you mentioned And then there's two additional records that come out as part of the American series. Uh, The first one comes out in 2006. Uh, The second one comes out in 2010, which at least for now seems to be uh, the final word on Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash there. Hopefully there's more stuff in the can and we'll eventually hear it. But after this length of time, it doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. Um, I will say we talked about the video for hurt another video that cash fans should really go seek out from this era is the video for God's going to cut you down, which was from the fifth American record, a hundred highways. Uh, this is the first posthumous release other than the gospel record. And it's just this incredible video where people who were deep lifelong Johnny cash fans like Johnny Depp, for example, You know, they sit there and they lip sync this song and these really incredible, you know, montages that are just glued together. And they they become this, this beautiful, beautiful tribute to the man.
1: This run of records kind of ends with Johnny doing some of the old gospel songs from his childhood called My Mother's Hymn Book. He keeps working straight through. And in the summer of 2003, June passes away from heart trouble and she tells Johnny, keep working. He tries, but the two of them are going to be together no matter what. And within four months of June's passing, in September of 2003, at the age of just 71, Johnny Cash from complications of diabetes and several different neurological disorders follows June. The circle remains unbroken. It's one of the great love stories of all time, and it is the great story in country music.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Please follow us on our Facebook page, uh, Six String Hayride. You can find us on Facebook. Please subscribe to us on Apple Music or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't find us in your favorite podcast service, why don't you email us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. Let us know. Uh, Also, let us know if there's any questions that you have, whether it be about any of these albums we've talked about today, Uh, Or anything else that you want to know. We're happy to take listener uh, questions. We'd really like to get some input. We've got some pretty good feedback. So let's hear what else everyone else has to say. And to take us home now, we have Jim to read us a recipe. Because when you're in prison, you got to live with fried bologna.
1: Well, today's recipe is, once again, from the June Carter, Johnny Cash Family Cookbook. And suitable for your prison cuisine. We have fried bologna and fried eggs with biscuits and tomatoes. This is pretty straightforward. You're going to need one 16-ounce can of refrigerated biscuits, one and one-half teaspoons of vegetable oil, six slices of bologna, six large eggs, salt and black pepper to taste, two to three fresh tomatoes that you will slice, some butter and some honey. Preheat the oven to 350 degrees. Place the biscuits on an ungreased cookie sheet. Place the sheet in the oven and bake the biscuits for 12 to 16 minutes until golden brown on the top. While the biscuits bake, cut small slits into the edges of the bologna slices to keep them from curling up while frying. Heat the vegetable oil in a large nonstick skillet over medium heat. Add the bologna slices and fry until crispy and browned. Remove the bologna to a paper towel-lined plate to drain. Crack the eggs into the same skillet. You want to cook them in the bologna drippings. Stir with a whisk and cook over medium heat until the eggs are softly scrambled. If you prefer, you may fry the eggs. Add a little bit of salt and a lot of black pepper. Place the biscuits on a plate. Add the bologna and the eggs. Serve with the tomato slices, butter, and honey. And until they let you out, this is all you're going to (laughs) get.
2: All right. Join us next time on The Hayride, where for real, we're going to talk about Rolling Stone and why we hate their country music tastes and also why we love them.
0: Yeah, we're going to Jackson Ain't never coming back